As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. I'm Big Jed, Jared Pennington. He's Cool Hand Luke Bogacki. If you're a regular listener, thank you for your patronage. If you're new, you'll probably catch on soon enough. Our goal is to shed some light on the events, news, and issues in sportsman drag racing and the stars within it. Welcome back, or welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast, where we sometimes discuss U.S. Olympic athletes, adult film stars, and sportsman drag racing. Big Jed, you picked a hell of a time to come out of announcer retirement. Just a few cars in Bristol. Did you stay busy? Yeah, Luke. I, you know, it was a decent, uh, it kept me busy a little bit. It was decent. Um, you know, I worked about 18 hours a damn day um, uh, talking about race cars going <laughs> down the track. So, yeah. Yeah, I, it was it was good. Now, nah, all kidding aside, it was uh, it was a special event. Um, was was honored to be a part of it, and really uh, really cool to see the car count there in Bristol, which we'll talk about more on the show, along with you know the SFG at Darlington, and of course the Jegs Summer Door Car Shootout loop. So some great events for us to talk about on the bracket side. Full transparency here: we're recording late Monday night. Jed's just over 24 hours removed from calling hours upon hours of cars going on the racetrack. So, Big Jed, thank you for, for continuing your commitment to sportsman <laughs> drag racing and, and just dedicating another, I don't know, hour and a half plus to the sport um, this evening. So, yeah, we we apologize. I guess we don't really apologize. I don't, I don't think we're really sorry. But we missed last week. There was no show last week. Jed was at Spring Fling Bristol. I, I'll be honest, I, I had my my feet kicked up on the beach. It was a rough week oh, uh, out in Myrtle Beach, heart. but you know, somebody's, somebody's got to do it. We've the, the, I say that to say this, we've got a lot to cover. Fall Fling Bristol. You mentioned SFG Super Bowl, Darlington, Jake Summer Door Car Shootout. We had a full slate of NHRA events since we last talked. There's been two national events, one points meet, 
We're going to do our best to get to all of it. Some big news in the sport, some sad news in the sport, some troubling news in the sport, uh, some exciting news in the sport. We're going to get to all of it and more. But first. And my best producer, Mark Voice, BJ North. Jed, we had a week off. There's been a ton of racing. We've got a lot to cover. Um, I'm not telling you anything. You, you just, you just came out of retirement to announce a race for the 700 race cars. We had a week off from the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Damn sure didn't take a week off. You, 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 you did. You went on vacation. <laughs> So you just signed up. I'm like, I mean, I'm sure there's nothing yeah. you'd rather do than talk racing with me for the next hour and a half. Right? Oh my God. Yeah. I, I haven't done talked racing since yesterday and, and every day before it for about four days. I think, I mean, a whole four days. Yeah. Let's, let's talk racing. Look. I think the biggest takeaway of the last two weeks, and I'm not telling you anything that you don't know, big Jed tremendous turnouts like i think it's fair to say that the um the demise of big dollar bracket racing has been slightly overstated uh yeah bracket racing big buck bracket racing's back <laughs> it's back baby yeah it's back over the last three weeks and, and i'm not gonna <clears throat> lump the the jeg summer door car shootout in with these other events but just as an example we had a sold out field at the jeg summer door car shootout biggest ever Nearly 400 entries at the SFG Super Bowl at Darlington. Nearly 700 entries at the Fall Fling Bristol, where you just came from, Big Jed. Yeah, yeah. bracket racing on the highest level certainly appears to be thriving. I don't know about you, <clears throat> prior to, to Bristol, was pleasantly surprised by the turnout at Darlington. I know it feels like the last time that we discussed SFG was shortly after the um the half million in july and basically we were we were defending kyle riley in, in ways and saying like hey it, it feels like the 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 sentiment around that is one of uh, of support of appreciation right i feel like that i don't want to say flipped but i i began to hear a lot more pushback maybe from taking that stance right i, I had a lot of racers say like hey this this act is, is, is wearing thin. Right. Um, so to that point, like I didn't have high expectations for Darlington. When I saw 390 plus entries, I thought I was pleasantly surprised. That's really good for Kyle. It's really good for SFG. I think that's more than, than I would have expected. Like he's still got a tremendous following. And I knew we knew, we talked about this. We knew Bristol was going to be big, but I was thinking big, like 450, maybe 500 entrants big. Right. 674? Yeah, 674, yeah. I counted every one of them. They were all there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Luke, I was so delirious when it was over with on my on my swan song, my final pair. I don't even know who was racing each other, by the way. But I was saying, and this is my last pair, and I'm done. I was saying, you know, he's going to take his shot. And I said he's going to take his shark. I said shart <laughs> on a on a hot mic on my way out the door. Uh, I was I was so excited to just be done calling laps. Uh, I, I guess I was just a little little out of sorts, but yeah, it was six seventy four, bro. 
that's uh that's what uh 387 side-by-side pairs to get you through round one yeah i was gonna say that's 387 in round two so that's a good round one in round two round one was literally i don't even know i mean six seven hours it was long now it's it's a bit misleading when we, to to say that Darlington had nearly four hundred cars or that Bristol had nearly seven hundred cars. Those are entries, right? And and in this day and age, both of those races have similar formats in terms of you can double enter, same car, same driver. But regardless, I don't know exactly how that fell at Bristol. Like there had to have been north of four hundred race cars on the grounds, right? Yeah, there definitely was like the the single entered uh, Group B cars. There seemed like a hundred or so of those. So I would say there was uh, there was slightly over four hundred on the grounds. And you know the the rigs at something like this are very large on average. So the place was slam full. I mean, it really was. It was. It, it reminded me of the days where they had the, you know, they'd get 450 to 500 single entries. And we know a lot of those still came in, the, came in the same trailer. So it looked, it looked like the, the spring fling early days in their heyday. It, the place was absolutely packed. Then obviously the, the decision was made. The only way that you're ever going to finish a race with nearly 700 entries is to cut out buybacks completely, which I think was the obvious decision, obviously welcomed by everyone that was there. I did see some, some pushback on the, uh, on the internet, like, well, why can't we just all enter once and, and have buybacks? Well, obviously at that point, like you can't walk that back. You can't, you can't put together an event based on allowing people to double same car, same driver, and then remove that option. Right. No. And, and honestly, like I tried to think through this a little bit and I'm, I'm curious to hear your, um, take on it as, as someone, a, that was there and B like probably has some insight to the decision-making process. Right. I don't, it doesn't necessarily save any time. Like if you've got 700 entries, then you've got 350 second round, right. Just for simple math. So if you, if you make it to where you can only single enter, like maybe that's um, maybe that is 450, something like that. And they can all buy back. There's going to be nearly a hundred percent buyback because there's no way that you can give a time trial. And so you're going to have close to 450 cars in round two. The, the little bit of time that you save in round two is going to be added on the rest of the way. Like, I don't think it saves anything on time. Right. I uh, know. I really don't think so. Um, I, I, the decision was made before I got there, but I would have been a, I would have been a proponent of how it ended up. Uh, I, I loved, I loved the no buyback mm-hmm. format. Uh, I know it takes a lot of entries to get there, but I'm a big fan of, of cutting it in half every round. And, um, you know, once, you know, it was 674. So I, we were talking like 387, obviously it was 337 or whatever, but, um, once yeah, you we got to not, that, not very good at math. Sorry. I am not good at math. Uh, <laughs> I promise you that not anymore. Once you got to second round, it had really good flow to it. The, the, you know, it was just that monster round that was in really challenging to get through and, uh, with the long waits, but, uh, three, three thirty ish 
in round two, that's a that's a manageable deal, and it it flowed well. I really liked their their A B C D format. Um, that was easy to follow. It was it was it, you know it levels the playing field somewhat with the doubles fighting against well, one another. So all that worked out really well. And no, I agree completely. When you get to that magnitude in terms of of the the amount of entries on the grounds. The way that Peter has drawn that up is absolutely the fairest way to go about that. Like, I think it mitigates a lot of the advantage that a same car, same driver would typically have, at least in the early rounds, because uh, you get to go down the track twice over the course of that, you know, seven hour time frame or however long it wouldn't be quite seven hours to run first round. Might have felt like it, right? Um, yes. <clears throat> and then, particularly in the second round, like you've got that extra run by making all of those individuals run each other. Yeah. Like that, that mitigates the advantage to that. I'm curious, we, we can approach this in a couple of different ways, like as a, as a racer. And again, I, I get the, I, I get that they didn't have this option in real time as a racer. Would you rather run? Would you rather be able to run two entries without a buyback or one entry with a buyback? Uh, before I did it, I probably would have said one with a buyback is probably what I, how I would have answered that after having done it, I would much rather run two without a buyback. Why? Um, well, I, I felt like, or I, you know, I, any other time when I'm single entered with a buyback, I feel like I've got a do over. I felt like my second entry was the do over, um, throughout the weekend and, you know, I don't know if it led me to, to drive a little better or what, but uh, I never lost first round with either entry any of the three days that I competed. I won first round every every entry. So maybe that's swaying my my thought process coming, you know, coming off of it where I had a lot of success in round one. But I uh, I just feel like, you know, my do over was another opportunity. It wasn't it didn't leave me with one. It left me with two if I got it through after I got the first one. So I don't know. My mentality was just really strong and confident with those two entries, knowing that if I beat whomever's in the other lane right here, they don't get to race anymore today. And something about that just made me feel good about the format. Sure. But whoever's in the other lane is probably double entered too, right? They were because everybody well, yeah, I was racing was yeah everybody I was racing was double entered but I knew that entry didn't get to come back sure so something about knowing that 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 very first run of the day could possibly eliminate my opponent I don't know it just made me feel a little better about it no and it's nice to to know too that you've got a mulligan so to speak and and that if you make the mistake or lose a good run third round it doesn't, you're not penalized for it, right? Like if you, if you had one, you had to buy back or you had one entry, you didn't have to buy back. You lose third round, your day's done. If you have two entries and you drive great four times and, and you make it to third round, like it's okay to make a mistake there. You still got one rolling, right? Yeah. Yeah. Again, that, that was kind of the mentality I had when I was going to third round each day. And, um, you know, I, it didn't necessarily work out great for me, but, uh, it was a challenging weekend on the racetrack with the weather swings and, all that that Bristol was throwing at us from a you know fall season type standpoint, uh, it was 
that flag, you never knew which way it was going to be blowing. You'd watch it blow, lay down and blow the other direction in a, in a 20 second time frame. So I had to, you know, I had to dial it for the worst conditions and kind of hope I got that. But if I ever did my burnout and the smoke passed me going to the Christmas tree, I was like, okay, here we go. You know, you got to kill some or kill some more. It was, it was challenging. It kept you thinking about your game the entire time until you, somebody got a win light. It, it was a, it was a tough week. Sure. No, it sounds like typical Bristol, particularly this time of year, right? Most definitely this time of year, you know, where, where our events are, or summertime events, the weather patterns are pretty stable. Uh, you'll, you'll get that little humidity burst sometimes where you lose a hundredth and a half, but uh, you, you gain it back the next round. But this, I mean, Luke, my car has been incredible at home. Incredible. Thursday from my new entry time run till the time I exited the program in fifth round, it moved 79,000. <laughs> it moved eight hundreds, Luke. <laughs> eight <laughs> so that's that's hard and and i wasn't alone quite a few of them moved that much no and it's uh i mean it speaks to like a little bit different skill set i think it takes a little bit different skill set to win any race that has that many entries and that much time between rounds and then you you just multiply that or compound that however you want to look at it by moving it to a place that's really really tricky to dial yeah yeah no doubt uh it was you know it was had a lot of challenges and it wasn't one just one thing it was it was quite a few factors as you as you're alluding to that it was causing the racing to be difficult but you know that's the that's the kind of race you really want who wants to go where everybody's letting go double o and just pointing it at the finish line and it's it's going low dead on every time that's that's more of a crapshoot. I would rather it be that type of environment where, you know, it's forcing people to drive and it's forcing people to think hard and all of those things. Uh, it didn't work out very good for me, but that's, <laughs> that's the kind of race I would prefer, honestly. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. I don't, I don't know if we're in the majority in saying that, but yeah, I, that, that definitely resonates with me. And, and speaking of <clears throat> not necessarily being in the majority, like I, I, I think I'm very much in the minority in this and I won't spend too much time on it because I know we've discussed it here before in, in years past, like if presented that, that same option that I presented you, Jed, like you can, you can double enter or you can have every, everybody can have one and a buyback. Like maybe I'm old school again, probably in the minority. Like I would prefer that everybody single entered and had a buyback. Now I, I'm not knocking the, the fling structure. I understand why they went that way. I don't think that they ever, in adopting that, I don't think they ever realized that they'd have 450 cars on the grounds, right? I don't know that they would rethink it, but I don't think that that was the, the model necessarily. But just from my argument against is, A, anytime that you, you enter a second time, like you could make the argument that it's not great value because in theory, you, 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 the first time you enter, you plan to win the race. Well, if the winner's purse is off the table, then all, all that you're doing with the second entry is trying to get runner up. And that's not great value, right? If you take the money straight off the flyer, which admittedly, the money rarely goes straight off the flyer. So maybe that's maybe that's not a good argument. Um, I, I just, I, again, old school, I, I don't care for same car, same driver doubles. And, and every race does it now, right? Um, the flings format, I think, limits the advantages of it 
and maybe minimizes them to the point that they don't exist. Just the fact that all doubles have to race other doubles. My argument against the, I mean, SFG was what, I, I hate to single them out, but SFG is what brought this format really to the forefront, you know, in the last five years or so. And what I didn't like about those races was when it was such a mega event with, you know, th there was SFG races that had five, 600 plus entries as well. And at those, when you would single enter, like it felt like a significant disadvantage. You would, you would race, you would race drivers that had been down the track perhaps multiple times since you had with the flings format, that's null and void. Um, but ultimately like my take on it is that I don't feel at, at a race where you can double same car, same driver, where it's a big crowd. I don't think it's a huge advantage to double because the majority of the field is doubled, but I tend to think it can be a pretty significant disadvantage not to double. And when that's the case, it just increases the board, the, the cost of competition across the board, because I feel like, and maybe, maybe others would push back on this, but I feel like to win a race like that, I have to double because everyone else is. So it's basically just doubling the entry fee all the way down, putting more runs on my stuff. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of things I don't like about the format in and of itself. But if you're going to do that in 95% of big dollar races today do, I think the format that the flings have adopted is the most fair way to go about it. Yeah, I agree with all that, Luke. It looked, um, it, it looked like it had great flow to it behind the scenes everything seemed to flow really well and when you got into the you know the mid rounds that fourth and fifth round there was a very small number of people that were bringing two back they were keeping up I with that, that yeah. make sure we got them to the front of the lines and I can't remember by the fifth round, I can't remember us ever having to get more than three, four, five people combined to the front to make sure that they had time to bring their second entry around in a, in a timely manner. So, you know, it, it seemed like the, everyone just chewed one another up and, and got rid of entry here, there till most everybody was just singled. Bart Nelson took two to 11, I think on Sunday, but that that type of deal was very very rare throughout the week. Yeah, that what Bart did Sunday may be as big of an accomplishment as anyone else went in the race. That's eleven cars left is what seventh round. So to yeah. twelve, string together twelve consecutive win lights over two days against that that crowd like that's pretty rare. Let's yeah. let's go through results kind of bit by bit here because we'll we'll kind of in this portion we'll kind of intertwine these two races, SFG, Darlington, Paul Fling, Bristol. Um, I think the biggest takeaway for me, I, I know that this inherently cannot be true because if it were a prerequisite, if, if a prerequisite to winning a $100,000 plus race was actually winning a $100,000 plus race, then no one would ever win their first one, right? But it feels like... <laughs> A prerequisite to winning a race of that nature is you have to have won one before. That's the way that it's been going. At Darlington, Kyle Colchera wins his second 100 grander in as many weeks. We just talked about him knocking off the 100 grander at the fling in Columbus. He duplicates that a week later, winning the 100 grander at Darlington. Oh, by the way, that's his third $100,000 triumph in the last calendar year. Donovan Williams claimed the other 100 grander at Darlington. Yeah. Oh, by the way, earlier this year, he won a hundred grander at Montgomery. That's his second of the season. Um, fast forward to, to Bristol, Ray Ray wins the hundred grand main event. 
And I had to look this up because I thought it was hundred grand earlier this year. He actually didn't win hundred grand earlier this year. He won a 75 grand earlier this year. A lot. Yeah, he was only 75. Before. So, so yeah, only 75. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Bless so his heart. It feels as if to do this, you have to have done it before again, that, that cannot technically be right, but that sure seems to be the way this is going in recent weeks. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and rewind to the, to the Columbus race where Nick Hastings had just won a hundred with us and, yeah. and got to the hundred K final in Columbus. So yeah, it's, there's something, uh, something to that where obviously guys are, once they do it, it's, it's just like they're the favorites now. Uh, it's, it's kind of a weird deal how it's working out in these very large purses, but um you know, there's it, something to be said for just having gone through that, knowing what to expect in terms of every piece of it, right? Knowing what that split conversation's like, understanding the the emotions, the pressure that you're going to go through in that. Like it, it is definitely an advantage to come into that from experience, but it, it seems kind of mind blowing that repeatedly, I don't say it's the same group, but it's guys that have been through that that keep winning. Like that's got to be a bit of an aberration. Yeah, I was, I was going to say it's, it's like uh, guys just get very comfortable in that setting and, you know, they it not much rattles them. And you think about some of the people that are winning these, these large events like this and, and, you know, going to back to back or even two in a season or what have you, they're all pretty even kill guys that, that don't get riled up too much and don't get too loud so you know maybe there's something to that mentality once you've accomplished it uh, i guess it you you can learn to relax in that atmosphere and it doesn't get to you as much and it's certainly um leading them to very very good results over and over yeah, I mean, there are a couple of names as we look through the results here that we don't necessarily see week in and week out. It was awesome to see Race Kid claim a $50,000 win at Darlington just to, to score yes. one for the left coasters and, and prove probably as much for race as anyone, but, but prove that, that that level of competition translates, right? That what race does on the West Coast isn't limited to the West Coast, right? It was good yes. to see him kind of break through that door and knock that down. Uh, we saw Blaine Mayer kick off the uh, the week in Bristol with a with an opening fifteen thousand dollar win. What was that on Wednesday? Um, trying to think. There's oh, Jack Collier making it to the final of the of the main event. Uh, Jack's a very experienced racer, but you know if you had a, a a draft, you know he's probably not in the top twenty to to be in that final, right? So there were some names that appeared in there that you might not expect, but by and large, like I'm just looking through results. We talked about the hundred thousand dollar winners from both Darlington and Bristol. Other winners, Troy Williams Jr., Corey Galitti, and Gary Williams ran off to to win a dragster. Like they both took dragster chassis home. Josh Ludke picked up a thirty grander. Matt Dadas picked up a thirty grander. Like these are all names that we've repeated over and over and over again this season. And it feels to me, Jed, I'm not out there living it like you did last week, and I'm not out there living it like we both did twenty years ago, but. This has a feel to me, like we talk about parity today, and I think we can all agree that racing is tighter. It's more difficult to win across the board. There are more racers and cars in the pits capable of winning any race that we go to, right? I think we can all agree to that. Sure. And yet at the same time, 
similar to what I'll call our heyday when we were running the B&M series and, and hitting all the big dollar bracket races, you know, two decades ago, despite that parody, it's beginning to feel like there is a widening gap between those, the racers who compete at that level, three to five days a week, 20, 30 weeks a year, and those who don't. Like, I don't think it's a tremendous uh, disparity in talent necessarily, but we just talked about the, the feel from going through that, from knowing what that feels like to compete at that level day in, forget week in and week out, like in many cases, day in and day out. And I believe you're beginning to see some of that separation that I felt like was, was really prevalent 20 years ago. Like it was a, it was a big advantage to make six, 700 runs down the racetrack. I don't know that you're necessarily making that level of passes down the track today, but the level of competition at its highest being a part of that day in, day out, week in, week out, I think we're beginning to see a separation between those that do that and those that don't. I would not disagree with that at all. I definitely think, um, you know, these, I talked to so many people at this event, Luke, that have been on the road for three weeks, you know, Columbus, Darlington, Bristol, that never, that hasn't gone home. You know, it's all they do. Um, there were a lot of people at Bristol that did what I did, that drove all night Wednesday night and rolled in the gate at 1 a.m. and had to be up and in the lanes at 8 for a new entry time trial after they laid down at 20 minutes after 2, time you got the jacks up and, the, and everything set up so or jacks down. So um, I think there's a, there is a definitely an advantage for those guys that this is all they do. And, you know, they, they get there early, they can relax, they're, they're a couple of days in, rested when things get started. And, uh, you know, a lot of them, quite honestly, have somebody that, that's handling all the business, you know, they're fueling it, checking the tires and loading it and unloading it. And uh, there, there's quite a few of those guys out there that have someone that does that for them. So, all that said, I, I think there's definitely a, a, an, a gap being created between the, the traveling pro, if you will, and the average racer. And, and it's not, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I think there's definitely an advantage to a guy that's out here for three weeks straight racing, enjoying themselves. And, you know, if, if they're, if they're in events that have large purses, you know, they might've made the split at the, the last two they were at in those two weeks. And now, you know, this one's not really beating on them financially and they're in good shape and comfortable. So all that stuff considered, I think it definitely plays into the outcome of the race. And Luke, this was a, again, a challenging week in terms of weather and all those things. It takes an experienced racer with good weather station data and all of that stuff to, to read these conditions and figure out how they're going to approach the next round. That's an advantage for the traveling pro that's been there, done that. And I saw so many, I, it literally was hundreds of races where 
the, the better reaction time and sometimes by a significant amount lost because the conditions were so tricky and the, the good racers didn't always have to be 10 thou advantage to win. They could be 10 to 20 disadvantage and turn a loss into a win just based on their experience and, and driving ability. And, you know, so many laps lead you to that kind of talent and results. So there's definitely a gap out there uh, as you, as you alluded to. Yeah. And just listening to you, like, I think it's also fair to mention that, that that's a two-sided sword. Like it, it's, it's, I can speak from experiences. I know you can too. Like it's not all fun and games to, to be the one on the road that that's doing it week in and week out. Like while there are inherent advantages to this, to that, um, it's also like, it becomes really hard to let go on like day 10, day 11, day 12. Like no matter how much you love this at some point, it, it begins to feel like a job. Right. So th- there's, there's two sides to everything, but, but yeah, like it, it just, the results that we are seeing, it seems like the sharpening of the saw, if you will, for the, the relatively small percentage of racers that are living this, that are at, you know, seemingly every or, or near every one of these events, like they, uh, fire strengthens iron, right? And they seem to, to continue to raise the bar at a time where we don't really feel like the bar can be raised much more. Um, before we close the, the book on Fall Fling Bristol, like obviously Ray Ray was MVP. We mentioned Josh Ludke continues his dominant season, like a really breakthrough season with another $30,000 win, this time in a borrowed car. Um, Matt Dattis just keeps doing what Matt Dattis does, wins another 30 grander on day number last. From your vantage point, Big Jed, what was the biggest story from Bristol or what's maybe the one thing that we haven't touched on to this point? Oh, look, that's a great question. Um, I, I think the overall atmosphere was the story for me. Um, you know, it was incredible. We're in a race where the the finish line was not clear as to if we would be able to get things finished each day and you know knowing that everything was going to be a challenge the atmosphere and and the the enthusiasm was off the chain it really was people were genuinely excited about being a part of the largest fling ever they seemed to embrace the the changes in the format and in terms of buybacks going away and which, I mean, everybody, everybody could see that was not. Yeah. There's no argument there. Yeah. (laughs) How how could you argue it? But I have seen people argue it before, even knowing that there's no way you were going to finish with a buyback, but I, I heard none of that. I saw none of that. And, um, you know, the, the vibe was truly, truly incredible um I, I think by and large people people were just genuinely happy to be a part of it uh, you know the the winning is the winning and everybody there wants to win but i, I seem to I, I the feel that i have was people took losing there better than i've ever seen them take losing you know they just were like yeah broke out by six you know typically that's going to ring questions you know what they want to question the timing system or you know the track sucked right up until this round now it's finally good 
you know, I, I saw so many goofy things happen. There wasn't time and system glitches. It was just weather, but saw so much goofy stuff happen and people just took it in stride and took it with a smile. The vibe was really something that you just don't get to enjoy at big money bracket races these days. What do you, what do you attribute that to? Like, is that, is that something that the fling staff can take credit for cultivating? Is that more on the racers? Is that something to do with the facility? Like, why do you think the vibe there is so positive? It seems to be year in and year out, but it sounds like this year, even with the challenges faced, like everybody was in a positive frame of mind. Yeah, I think there's a lot of different reasons for that. I I definitely think there's a, a level of respect for Peter and the job that he's doing I'll try to steer clear the word alone, but we all know it was Peter and Kyle and they both had their, their function and they both handled it well. Now, Peter seemingly kind of has all of that on him and I saw stressful moments for him, but I think there's a level of respect for him. I think that, uh, that people, I I just don't think people want to be that guy. Uh, Even when I did see somebody have a little bit of an issue, Luke, the way it was presented was so nice and professional and Hey, uh, Peter, could I talk to you just a moment? I wanted to discuss, you know, the dog run out in, in the lane right in front of me. And I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want anything <laughs> for it, but you know, it was just like, didn't matter what happened. They just seemed to really handle it well. Um, and you know, again, that's, I think there's a lot of respect for Peter there. And I think people, I think, you know, the way we announce the race, I think the prizes that just continue to be given over and over and over, it, it happens at your event, in which we're going to talk about soon, about how much, how much prize support you guys get and the constant giving and giving and giving and, you know, the, the Kyle Sipel commemorative coins for triple zero lights with a $50 bill. I think the the format and the prize vault at the race is so solid and so racer accommodating that I think people just genuinely appreciate it. Maybe they've gone to plenty of other events and it, you know, it stands out because of the format and all of the offerings that it has, but I think people just genuinely appreciate that. And, you know, one of the worst things can happen at a race, Luke, is a couple of neighbors get to talking about what they hate and what they're mad about. And then all of a sudden, everybody's mad about it, whether it's happened to them or not. Sure. I just don't think you get that at this type of race or at a fling event. And it keeps that cancer from spreading as a poor choice of words, but it keeps that from spreading through the pits. No, I think it's a good choice of words. And I, and I think you're dead on. Like, you, I feel like... Peter and, and, and Kyle were obviously innovators coming in, but it, that hasn't stopped. Like you just, you see, I, a couple of the things that, that jumped out to me, like obviously the, the MVP awards become such a, such a big deal. I, I noticed that they've taken, um, you know, some of the, the, uh, best losing package prizes. Like those are cash, like $500 cash, right? The, the other, other the, you just don't see that at other events. And, and I saw that they had announced, you know, the, the first, um, the first one, the first driver to win five fling events going to get a $5,000 bonus, $5,000. Right. And it's, Oh it's yeah. That was, that was a cool thing. 
Yeah, it's seemingly small. I mean, that, that's not small, but individual things like this that, that standing alone probably don't seem like they make that much difference, but when they just continue to compound and they just keep rolling out with you know, fresh ideas that are, that are racer-based, I think it's, I can see where it is difficult as a racer to get upset, right? <laughs> like it's hard to be in a bad mood when you see the, the promoters consistently making an effort to give back. I mean, you can put pencil to paper and like, this is a very profitable race. So, it, but it's not that, like, I remember going to the old George Howard million and everybody would, would kind of get in a bubble and be like, you know, he, he makes so much money off this race. Like it still had its spectacle. It still had its, it's, uh, it, it was still a race on a pedestal because of what it was, but there was a lot of that kind of undermining talk going through the pit, spreading like a cancer, if you will. And I just don't get that feeling at a, at a flag event. Maybe it is respect for Peter, but I think by and large, it is, it is just a, an appreciation for the little things that continue to be done in an effort to give back to the racers. So yeah, I think there's a lot that plays into it. Like, I think it's hard to be too upset at Bristol, uh, especially when the weather's decent, right? Um, and surrounded by friends, but I think that, I think that the fling staff can take some credit for cultivating that atmosphere. Yeah, I agree, Luke. You know, we're, we're experienced guys at the racetrack and you can feel when you're at the track, you can feel when it feels like the promoter is trying to find every opportunity they can to get something out of your pocket. You know, you've been to those races and that starts to aggravate you a little bit. The, the fling format is exactly the opposite of that. It's, you know, they, they get what they get at the gate. In this particular case, there were no buybacks. So all the racers knew their, their investment. They knew exactly what they were going to spend and it's done and over with. You don't have to worry about any buybacks. And the rest of the week, it's constant finding ways to get something in your hand. I mean, so many racers left there with something extra just like they do at your event. Um, and I think that just creates a great vibe. Yeah, I guess we could transition then into the, the Jeg Summer Door Car Shootout. I, I didn't, we haven't recorded since the 11th annual Jeg Summer Door Car Shootout. I obviously didn't want to lead with it because quite frankly, it's, it's an event that we probably wouldn't discuss much, if at all, if it wasn't my event, right? So I didn't want to certainly overshadow the, the fall fling or the, the SFG Super Bowl with it. Um, but the event is in the books. Like it was a great atmosphere. It was a fun show. I will say, um, and it's funny because the majority of the feedback that I get on this, at least to my face is extremely positive, but I'll just say like from a, from a promoter's perspective, like in terms of the, the product that we delivered the racers at this year's Jag Summer Door Car Shootout, I actually felt like it was one of our, our worst events. Like I don't want to be the Debbie Downer, but there's a lot of things that didn't go particularly smoothly. We had some, we had some timing system issues, which if I'm going to be completely honest, were largely self-inflicted. Uh, we had some traction issues, particularly at night. Uh, you know, like the, the, the things that are probably most important to competitive balance weren't optimal. Like it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't awful, but it wasn't great. And I, I think my takeaway from it, Big Jed, and I know that you've been here on, on some level is the, this was really humbling for me as a, as a race promoter, which when I can step away from it now, you know, a week removed, I probably needed that. Like this has gone relatively smoothly for, for us for a decade. 
and it's very easy to, to get on my high horse and be judgmental of, of other promoters, right? Because I feel like I kind of know what it takes. It's really, there's so, I won't even go so far as to say there's so much that's out of our control in putting on a race. Cause ultimately like we answer to all of it, but there's just a lot of moving parts and it's really easy for something perhaps small, perhaps small in, in the eyes of others, but big to us, it's really easy for things to go off the rails and it's really hard to rein it back in. So I think, uh, I think it was good for me to, to, to have that sense of like, okay, this doesn't always go perfectly. Like it went fine. I think the majority of our racers enjoyed it. I've got some great stories to tell from the event that we'll get into, but it wasn't all just uh, smooth sailing as it's been for, for many years in the past. That's that's quite interesting. Uh, obviously, I saw your bullet points in the show notes uh, earlier today when I got a chance to look it over. And I, when I saw the bullet points about some things maybe that you wish had gone better, I was really kind of taken aback. I was shocked because everything I've seen online just talked about, you know, how great the event is. Uh, and I'm sure it was still great. Uh, uh, these these things could not have dominated the event, or you know, it would have it would have come out in the wash on social media. So I'm sure it was uh, isolated incidents, uh, maybe in all these areas. But everything looked at on the outside looking in. From the outside looking in, everything looked amazing. Uh, oh, so. I don't I don't want to overshadow the the vibe of the event and i'm probably I'm, i i would like to think i'll always be our own worst critic but yeah like the the atmosphere of the jake summer dorka shootout was completely intact right full packed house saturday night everybody going nuts crawling over the fence we got racers throwing out frisbees everybody's having a ball um just the the whole atmosphere around the race it, it was great. Like, I, I, I don't want to overshadow that. I just, I feel like as we prepare for next year, like we could do a better job and we will, but no, overall, I think the race was a, was a huge success. The, the big winners, big Jed. I know it's, it's been a few years since you've been there. It's been a few years since Jeremy Jensen had been up to the, the Jake summer door car shootout. He left no doubt. JJ is the undisputed King of the Jake summer door car shootout. We, we put together this special event this season, um, it was, we called it the, the Siebert performance ultimate 57. It was an invitation only event for racers that had either won a previous Jag summer door car shootout event and, or, uh, had attended nine of the 10 minimum several racers that had, had been to all 10. I think we had, we had, we called it the ultimate 57 because initially there were 57 racers that qualified. Plus we had two winners Friday and Saturday that also became eligible Todd Sensony was Saturday's winner. He was already eligible. So we had a, a, a pot of 58 potential racers. I think, uh, I think 50 of them showed up, 48, something of that nature. And they got to run off. This was an invitation-only free entry event. They ran off for a new uh, Siebert Performance LS 402 cubic inch engine, carb to pan, 700-plus horsepower, $18,000 value, You know, just compliments courtesy of, of us and Siebert Performance to the winner of that event. And Jeremy Jensen, who has been the winningest driver in Jake's summer door car shootout history, I guess it's fitting that he would roll through and win that event. He did that. He defeated Jason McConnell in the final. It was a cool scene. That's what we attached the Frisbee contest to this season. So we had fan interaction. 
Uh, we finished it at a decent hour where the, the stands were still packed, even for the final. The fans are going nuts. Willie's working it on the mic. Like it was a cool scene, right? And, and I think fitting that Jeremy Jensen ends up winning that. Uh, our $11,000 main event were won by Tori Williams. Uh, on Friday, he defeated Jonathan Rogers in the final. Todd Sensony, as I mentioned, uh, won yet again at the Jake Simmerdor car shootout. He defeated Brandon Schmall in the Saturday final. Brandon was off the bottom. He was trying to become the first driver in event history to win a main event off the off the bottom. He nearly did it. I think he lost the final by two thousandths of a second to uh, Sensony. And then the weekend ended with Brian Whitworth driving his S10 to the $11,000 victory over Jared Fulcher. And of all of the winners, like obviously anyone that wins an event like that made really impressive runs. Toy Williams made impressive runs on Friday. Todd Sensony was nearly unbeatable Saturday. He had two entries or two different cars um, down to the final eight, lost, dropped one there, ended up winning the race. But if I had to give like most impressive performance, you know, MVP, if you will, what Brian Whitworth did on Sunday was flat, ridiculous, Big Jed. He was nine rounds of competition. Um, you know, spread out over the course of the day, obviously door car only race. Brian was 15, one round. I believe he was 11, one round after that, everything was double O's. And I, if he was double O four once he was double O four, like five times, including the final, like just made nasty run after nasty run after nasty run. He and his father, Mike were actually doubled in that S 10, uh, was we allowed two drivers could drive one car. So they were doubled down to eight. And who knows, like they may have been able to run each other in the final. They actually got paired up on the ladder at eight and had to eliminate an entry. Uh, it was kind of a funny story. Like they come back and Brian says, well, I told my dad, I said that, I guess I need my truck back. And he said, my dad looked at me and said, I guess I need my carburetor back. How are we going to do this? <laughs> <laughs> that is good stuff. Brian won out advanced and then ended up making good on it and winning the race. So yeah, it was a, it was a fun weekend. Like I say, highlighted by some, some great performances. Uh, Luke, again, I, everything I saw said that it was amazing. Um, you know, I know from experience that, uh, that I-57 is a wheelie track. Um, I've experienced the wheelies there. I saw some people, you know, I saw the Lucas Walker about drag the tailpipes off of it. I saw other people post pictures, you know, car doing the biggest wheelies it's ever done. So, you know, all in all, it looked like the typical Jeg summer door car shootout that I've grown to know and love. And I think by and large, I, I know you well. And so I know some of these isolated incidents have your wheels turning and have you already uh, focused on what you're going to do to, to try to make there be no issues next year. And I'm sure that it'll be an improved product, even if it was great. So looking forward to that. Uh, obviously I was invited to the ultimate 57 shootout. Um, couldn't get out of a work trip that I had to take, but you stood as us it, up. yeah, as it turns out, Jeremy <laughs> Jensen is, uh, I can't beat Jeremy Jensen. So at some point it looks like I would have had to, so it worked out good for me. It's a good decision on my part to, <laughs> to just make the work trip. <laughs> your, your winners are a lot of talented guys and a lot of people that have supported the product for quite some time. Um, the quick 16 deal, John Davis over one of the most controversial names that I've ever seen as an announcer. Um, <laughs> it's, it's Matt Fox, but 
Uh, it's spelled not, not exactly spelled Fox, not what the Fox say. <laughs> no, it's spelled F U C H S. Uh, the first time I looked at it, I was like, there's no way I can't, I can't announce this. I don't, there's no way to clean this up. But as I was told by you guys, it's Fox, but, uh, all in all, man, it looked like an awesome time. Uh, your product was as good this year as it's ever been. I know you've got some help now with your social media presence and, uh, it was evident, yeah. you know, there's yeah. only, you only have so many hours in a day and there's only so much you can do yourself the help that you have on your staff now, it was evident that it helped your product be more in the line of sight. All in all, Luke, you should be super proud of this. It was a great event and you uh, represent your sponsors well, and you put on a great show for the racers. So I'm sure next year is going to be as good or better. No, it's, uh, I am, I, I am proud of it. I appreciate those words, Big Jed. It's, uh, it's one of those things like as a racer, you come into an event and you want to, you want to have the perfect race day. Right. But in reality, um, even if we have the, the great race day and win the race, like I don't, I've never heard of anyone that was triple zero and dead on zero for nine consecutive rounds. And yet that's <laughs> what we strive for. And in putting on a race is very much the same way. Like you want everything to just be completely 100% perfect. And you draw it up and you try to think of every possible scenario to do that. And, and, and it never, it's never going to line up. Like it's never all going to fall in place and everything be perfect. Like you can come into it with the best of intentions. And sometimes it's just not exactly the way that you drew it up. But I, I do think to your point by and large, like uh, we did, I don't want to give ourselves too much credit, but we did a lot really, really well. I was going to say like 99%, but that sounds, that sounds just as unattainable as being perfect and dead on zero. So it was a good race. There's just, there's, there's room to improve. I will say this big Jed, you mentioned the wheelies. So Lucas Walker's wheelies, like it's so freaking pretty and it's in two different cars, right? It's just amazing. And it was so to that end, like so disappointing because perhaps Lucas's least impressive wheelie of the entire event. Every round where we didn't care about wheelies, he's doing beautiful wheelies. Maybe the least impressive one was actually in the main event wheelie contest. And it was still awesome. Like it was still 60 foots on the rear tires. Like it was just tame, right? And right behind him, here comes Kyle Hancock with a similar wheelie, like maybe just up a little bit higher, maybe just a little longer, but like very much six to one half dozen to the other. And then for whatever reason, like on this beautifully perfect straight wheelie from Kyle Hancock and his, in his nine inch tire Nova at, I don't know, about 80 feet on the bumper. It just hangs right. And he crosses the center line in midair. Thankfully he was in the left lane, crosses the center line in midair, sets it down in the right lane. <laughs> and it's a crowd, it's fan vote for the wheelie contest. So obviously Lucas isn't going to win. This dude just crossed the center line on the rear tires. <laughs> so Kyle <laughs> Hancock rightfully steals the wheelie crown from, from Lucas Walker and Big Jed, our burnout contest. Like it's always fun. It's always entertaining. We saw, I don't even think it's arguable. Like obviously I've been there for all 11 of these. We saw the best damn burnout in Jake's summer door car shootout history Saturday night. It was awesome. 
I'm, I hate I missed that. I, I didn't get to see any video or anything of it, but I have seen some absolutely epic burnouts at the Jake Summerdor car shootout. So if you're given, if you're paying homage to this one on that level, it, it must have been incredible. We should have had a crown for James Taylor, right? We've done enough of these, Jed. I think you and I have joked about this before. What's the key to winning the burnout contest? Um, I guess, uh, length time, the key to win in the burnout contest when it comes down to the mano a mano two man show at the end, because like the way we do this is second round, you got to qualify to be in the burnout contest. Right. And why do we do it second round? Because any idiot can do a burnout in time trials, right? You got to <laughs> do it when it matters, stage up and try to race for 11 grand. That's the fun of it. Right. So typically we get half a dozen, you know, viable entrance candidates, you know, people that raise their hand and say, Hey, I'm going to do a burnout. Right. And we have to narrow that to two for Saturday night. Once we get to Saturday night. So we got, we got two knuckleheads that have agreed to come out and do a burnout in front of the fans. Right. So there is, there is a, a an element of machismo there, right? You gotta, you gotta kind of show off. Right. And so at that point, once you make it to that point, we've kept you there way longer than you should have been there to do something that, you know, is borderline idiotic, right? Like you're going to try to go blow your stuff up, right. To win a set of tires. That's what we're asking people for. Yeah. You got to stay there a while. Yes. So at that point, like both, both drivers are very much committed to the bit. Why wouldn't you be? So the differentiating factor year over year, we see this, the winner of the burnout contest is the winner of the coin flip. Because whoever goes first, no matter what you do, no matter how epic it is, the other competitor gets to see it and be like, okay, well, that's all I I got. I just got to do better than that. That's it. Right. So David Hearn loses the coin flip. David Hearn does an epic burnout. (laughs) James Taylor rolls into the water. Let me just preface how all this went down, Big Jet. I'm on the deck on the second floor of the tower at I-57 Drag Strip. I walk out to watch this alongside Brian Robinson and Gary Stinnett. Okay. And this conversation goes exactly the way that you would expect it to go. Right. We watch David Hearns burnout. We laugh. I tell them the winner is obviously going to be this guy. He won the coin flip. He's whatever David just did. He's just going to do that much dumber, right? Like that much wilder. Like, here we go. And meanwhile, Stinnett is just explaining to us how hard that is on connecting rods right? It's exactly the way you'd expect the conversation to go, right? And, and, and Brian's laughing. I mean, we're all, we're all having a good time. This James Taylor rolls into the water. Let me frame this for you, Big Jed. This is a, a, a mid-tire, like a, a mini-tub um, box Nova, like 72 model Nova. He's got 740 on the window, Big Jed. This is not an overpowered, fast race car. And Brian Robinson looks at me and goes, 740? He's going to have to get after it. I said, yeah, he's going to have to get after it. And James Taylor starts his burnout in the water and, and does, you know, your typical burnout contest. It heats up a little bit, you know, and we're pretty well smoked out. And then you, you see him release the brake and it, and it gets to move and it probably comes 10 feet out of the water box. And you hear the motor bog down to the point that Brian turns to me and goes, oh, it's over. He's not going to do it. And then all of a sudden he saves it. He like stands on the brake, gives it, gets gas back going and, and I mean, gets some by God smoking again and <laughs> continues this now 
like just creeping forward at a snail's pace, you know, a couple of feet at a time for no kidding, like the next minute. And it's still boiling the tires as he crosses the starting line. He goes to 3.30 with like this minute long burnout. The whole place is engulfed in smoke. It's the <laughs> damnedest thing I've ever seen, Big Jetty. It was unbelievable. No way that can lose. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't, you couldn't vote against David. David Hearn was awesome. Nobody voted for David Hearn. Like it was crickets when they said, who, who, let's hear it from the fans for David Hearn. <laughs> yeah. Taylor in the place goes bonkers, yeah. Right? Woo. It was just amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure David Hearn even voted for Taylor. So <laughs> I think he had to. He had to. He saw it, right? That David's that cool. He knows a good burnout when he sees it. He did. Yeah. Good point. So yeah, that was <laughs> it. Sounds like was a good a, time. It was another fun Jake Summer Door Car shootout. We had a packed house, 250 entries. Um, like I say, far exceeded our expectations. The first time ever we had to turn people away. Uh, it was a lot of fun. And uh, like I say, we got a lot of notes for things that we're going to do a little different next year. Make it even better. Uh, I, I saw someone uh, during your event uh, that asked something about a live feed. You know, if you had like the Motor Mania TV live feed or whatever there, that's the last thing that, that you can do is bring that there because if you show that product to the world from <laughs> from that perspective you, you the facility is not big enough you you would have to tell more people that they couldn't come than you let show up so, so uh, it would just create problems for you so never get the live feed there it's not worth it two two reasons we've pushed back against the live feed to this point and and basically you hit on one um, it's, it's hard to, um, from a promotional standpoint, it's difficult to justify the value in it. We literally couldn't park 10 more race cars. Like we were, we're maxed out at 250. Like, and, and the only reason we could have parked 10 more is because it didn't rain for two weeks. Like we had literally every foot of the facility to our disposal. And there was a few feet left over when we were done. And on the opposite side of the racetrack, we have over a thousand spectators, like, it, it didn't quite get to this point this season. Last season, we had vehicles parked outside the gate because there was no more room to drive a car into the facility. So we're maxed out on cars, we're maxed out on pit space, and we're maxed out on spectator space. So why, to your point, like, wh why do I want to show this to the masses and be like, hey, you got to come. Where are you going to come? Where, where am I going to put you? Like, exactly. We've hit the max. The other reason that we've shied away from it and maybe this is more perception than reality. Uh, we've talked about this before. My um, feeling around the Jeg Summer Dorka shootout, and I don't obviously get to race in it, so I, I'm getting a little bit different view, a little bit different perspective. But the atmosphere around that event, the only thing I can say it reminds me of is going to like the Texas shootout with my father in the late eighties. Like it is literally like going back in time. It's a very old school vibe. It's door cars only. It's at a small racetrack. And my fear is that if we broadcast that to the masses, it loses some of that vibe. Like it loses some of that old school. Like I, I don't really want to bring it into the current century or the current decade. Like I, I fear messing with that, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. It, there is a there's a special feel at this event and i couldn't agree more you this doesn't have the the need to be turned into you know the mega event 
where people are driving coast to coast to, you know, this is a, this has a good small town feel. You had racers there from Texas. I mean, you got people that travel quite a distance to be there. You, you've had Canadians there for years. Um, hey. It, uh, so, you know, but this doesn't have an, need to be that talent it's it's special because of what it is and that doesn't need to be messed with all right we we let's digress we spent more time on that than i had intended let's talk a little bit nhra because since the last time that we talked big jed the national events in reading national events in charlotte we had a divisional at Calot a week ago a lot has changed but i think it's fair to say if not obvious the biggest story coming away from the weekend how about our man, Dan Fletcher, Big Jed? He wins stock at the Charlotte National event. Uh, it's his first win this season, but more importantly, it is his 106th NHRA National event victory. Why is that significant? Because coming into this event, he was tied with Frank Manzo at 105. Now, with his 106th national event win, Dan Fletcher is second only to John Force. In number of NHRA national event wins, 106, Big Jed. Incredible. Incredible performance, incredible career. Uh, a guy that has shown the versatility that very, very few people possess. You know, he's he's won events in um, comp eliminator. He's won events in stock and super stock and, and the 90 categories. I mean, Dan's a, a very versatile and talented racer, um, is living in a world where there's tons of great competition everywhere he turns. So it's hard for anybody in that world to be dominant. But over the totality of his career, he's obviously the best that's ever done it, Luke. And it's, uh, it's, it's great to see because I really like Dan and I really appreciate how he goes about his business and uh, the, the work that he puts into his craft. So very, very happy to see uh, Dan put himself in that position on the list. It's um, yeah, I, I agree 100% with everything that you said. I think it, it speaks to Dan's uh, attention to detail, Dan's talent, Dan's um, perseverance, but more than anything, like think about how much, this sport has changed in the time that we've been doing it, Big Jed. And you take the initial Fletcher domination, it, it dates back longer than I've been doing this, maybe similar to just the time that you have, and seemingly never wavered. Like it takes a different skill set to win today than it did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. It takes a different combination in most cases to win. Like it's how much the sport has evolved and to see someone like Dan just uh, evolve with it, you know, and, and continue to push himself to get better in the ways that it was necessary to get better over time. That's not common, much less the stick to to do it at the level that he has for as long as he has. It's one of those, like, this is the, I don't know, what's the most, um, I, I'm blanking on like the most, unattainable record in sports. Like, I don't know that anyone's ever going to bat 400, you know, um, or, or Cal Ripken's uh, consecutive game streak. Like that's the one that's never going to be touched. Right. This is a record that people are going to dust off 50, a hundred years from now. No one's going to get close to this. I don't know that another sportsman racer will ever uh, accumulate half the national event wins that Dan Fletcher has. 
Like it's one of those things that now it's, we're at a different place in time where it doesn't really make any sense to go about it the way that Fletch went about it for three decades. But even if someone wanted to, you're never going to match this. 106 national events, Jed. Like there are great racers, multi-time world championship racers that have won a dozen. He's won 106. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a reason why people won't do it the way Dan did it for several decades, uh, because it's not doable. You you could do it the way he did it and go to, you know, I guess Dan was doing it when they had 20, I don't know, 27, 28, whatever the number was. He was going all of them. And, you know, yeah. he won his, he won his share, uh, as a result of participation and, and talent. Well, now there's, I don't know, was 22, 23, but you, you couldn't waste your time and money going to all of them because you can't be dominant anymore. You can't be what Dan Fletcher was in his uh, time on the road every week or every other week. So that's why people don't chase it like that anymore, which is one of the reasons no one will ever get to 106 like Dan. But the other reason is, is because it's not possible. Even if you go to enough of them to win 106, you're not going to win 106 because there's too much talent and great equipment out there. So Dan certainly is a, a bit of a dinosaur in terms of how long he's been doing it. But the fact that he's still out there winning on occasion and he doesn't give himself near as many opportunities as he used to but he can still get it done on occasion just shows how great he is uh, dan's a, a super talented guy and uh, it's fun to see that talent win out and and again extra special to see him position himself on the list just only second to john force which will never be caught by anyone ever 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 um, but dan doing it on the sportsman side and being the the top sportsman racer in the in the history of the sport uh it's pretty impressive and deserving i want to spend a little bit of time big jed talking about the class that that dan fletcher is probably most known for right superstock checkmate baby so we have said i have said for months that the one sure thing this season is that greg stanfield's going to win his sixth nhra superstock world championship like that's a given um, time out. <laughs> I'm not sure that's a given. I'm going to dedicate, perhaps it's, it's, it's next episode to just complete my, my annual, maybe twice annual NHRA nerd out. Like that's coming. Right. But here's a little teaser super stock for as incredible a season as Greg Stanfield has had and is having. And to be quite frank, like he's still probably the favorite to win this national championship. Pete Dagnolo and Wyatt Wagner have said, whoa, not so fast, my friend. They have made this Superstock points chase way more interesting than I ever thought it would be. Dagnolo, runner-up in Charlotte this weekend in Superstock. By the way, we figured out how to beat Pete. Like, nobody could beat Pete at Indy. Nobody could beat, beat Pete the following week when he won the 30 grander at Columbus. Um, Troy Huntsbury figured out how to beat Pete in the final. Do you see that? I see the show notes. <laughs> you know, that's that is how you beat him. <laughs> but you got to you got to be aggressive. You, you got to get her done. Double O one dead on zero. That's all it takes. That's all, that's all it takes to beat Pete Dagnolo. That's what Troy Huntsbury laid down in the final round at Charlotte, and it prevents Dagnolo from completing uh, the perfect national event season. This was only his fifth national event. 
he won Charlotte back in the spring. He obviously won the U.S. Nationals. Had he won Charlotte in the fall, that's the perfect three. You only get to claim points for three national events out of the first six that you go to. In just five events, Pete Dagnolo did his best to win three. He comes up one round short, again, against the 1,000th package of Troy Huntsbury. Let's talk on Huntsbury for a second. So his, his path to victory started in a very clutch way, if you will, a very impressive way. Troy Huntsbury, round one, heads up race with uh, Brian Warner. And if you know the Warners, like you know that they are both world champions, you know that they're both very competitive in Superstock. You also know that they're very fast. Like they don't lose very many heads up runs. And to that point, Brian Warner had the performance advantage here. He actually outran Troy Huntsbury in round one by uh, eight hundredths of a second, a smooth eight hundredths of a second. Exactly, yeah. In doing so, Brian Warner posted an 86 reaction time. That should work, right? Like Troy Huntsbury had uh, six thousandths of a second to get in on. Troy Huntsbury was perfect <laughs> round one to win that heads up race by six thousandths of a second. He proceeds through the event. He wasn't perfect every round, right? But he was very solid throughout and then advances to the final round where he lays down one total. So it starts and ends with a bang for Troy Huntsbury. He collects his first national event win at Pete Dagnolo's expense. Now, Dagnolo, his runner-up, it moves him to, to fourth in the national standings on paper. But realistically, uh, he Greg Stanfield is third. Now, the advantage that Dagnolo and Stanfield have is that they each still have an event that counts full for points. So when Pete Dagnolo stages for his next divisional event, he's getting all of those points. He's not improving on anything. When Greg Stanfield stages at his next national event, he's getting all of those points, not improving on anything. So simply by staging for round one, they both add 30 points to their total. So when you take that into consideration, they're essentially one and two, okay? Now they've got a lot of races left. The tricky part for Dagnolo, I don't know if it's realistic for him to make a full uh, slate of divisional events. And maybe he doesn't have to. So the way that NHRA points work, you get to claim your best five divisional events from the first eight that you attend. Um, and as I mentioned, Pete Dagnolo has a near perfect national event score. He's not going to improve on that side unless he wins one, right? Unless he wins another one, I should say. But on the divisional side, he could still attend four events. Uh, he's been to four. So you, you get four more to get five good ones. I don't know that he can make four more. Like I assume he'll be in Virginia this weekend, which that looks a little bit precarious weather-wise. I don't know if that's going to be rescheduled or if they're going to try to get that in. Like the the, the remnants of the hurricane are going to come up there and, and at least the forecast as we record, it doesn't look good to get racing in in Virginia. But even if they were able to complete that race, in theory, you're just running out of points meets if you're Pete Dagnolo. In theory, he could leave Virginia, drive to St. Louis, and run the doubleheader there next week, then leave St. Louis, drive to Orlando, and run an eighth divisional event. Um, but I don't, I don't know what Pete Dagnolo's like work and family commitments look like. That's none of those are close to New York, and three consecutive weeks on the road crisscrossing the country. Uh, for, for from a financial standpoint, for what it pays to win the world championship, probably doesn't make a ton of sense. And yet, if you're competing with Greg Stanfield, you're competing with Wyatt Wagner, you're competing with Ryan McClanahan, like you probably want to give yourself every opportunity that you can. So it'd be interesting to see 
what's Pete, what Pete's even capable of doing and, and how much he can make it stick at the races that he does attend. Luke, when you skip, when you go to Columbus and win 30K in your Malibu um, racing the, the, the summer fling, and then the fall fling has a purse identical to it and you skip that to go to Charlotte and basically race for points, that is a clear sign that he's going to do whatever he's got to do. He's going to go wherever he's got to go. He's going to go to as many as he has to go to. He's chasing this. He's going to be at those races. And somehow, some way, his stuff's going to get from one of those tracks to the other and compete for this world championship. You don't make that decision to skip the, the next fling after that kind of success when you're, you're not planning to chase it. So he accomplished what he, he needed to accomplish by going to that final, and he's going to continue chasing this. And, I mean, I'd say the odds are in his favor. Stanfield's as good as there's ever been. But something about PDD, he's just that darn good. And I, I feel like he's going to accomplish the goal. That's what's so intriguing about this race because – Obviously, Stanfield has been there and done that, right? No one more accomplished in the class than he is. And if history is any indication, like Stanfield's route to the championship has been thought out. Like he will, he will max out on races, right? And, and, and I'm sure that they've done this in a very strategic way. It's the way last year went. Like he kind of lurked back. He made several national events late in the season as, the, as, as Aaron's commitments and factory stock began to wane, like oh, business commitments, how, however they structured that. Like it seems like it's very much on purpose. So Greg's going to give himself every opportunity. And then you've got Dagnola who just can't do anything wrong this season. He's been so impressive in everything that he's done. They both have so many races left with so few races remaining on the schedule. It's going to be fascinating to watch. And it's not just them. We've talked about Ryan McClanahan all season. He's still got a shot at this. And we haven't even discussed the guy that's leading right now, Wyatt Wagner, right? Wagner is not in as good position as either Greg Stanfield or Pete Dagnolo, but he still has four races left to improve. And obviously he'll be at the three upcoming races at St. Louis over the course of the next two weeks. The national event is this weekend. There's a double divisional next weekend. He'll be at Dallas, presumably the week after that. He's improving a second round loss at a national. He's improving a third round loss at a divisional. It's not crazy to think that Wyatt Wagner could crest 650 points. I don't know that that's going to win over Greg Stanfield and Pete Dagnolo, but he's going to be a factor. And then I mentioned McClanahan. He's still lurking, like really in a similar position to Wagner. And we're not going to know how McClanahan's score stacks up until the very last races of the season out West. Like this is going to be something that we talk about for the next uh, what, six weeks before this is resolved. Yeah. And if I can just be fully transparent here, Wyatt Wagner is who I want to win it. Uh, I'm sick of talking about how good Pete Diagnolo is. I'm sick of talking about how good Greg Stanfield is. <laughs> sick of talking about Ryan McClanahan. These guys are winning all the time, year after year, and I'm completely over them. Wyatt Wagner is my choice. And I'm hoping he goes to enough events and gets this done because that would be the story you know who ryan mcclanahan wins world championship ho hum same for greg stanfield same for pete diagnolo <laughs> wyatt wagner beats those guys 
there's a story in that, Luke. And that's what it's all about is the story, bro. Now, obviously, I say that kiddingly, uh, though I have much respect for all those competitors and and just really can't wait to see who wins it. But it would be cool to see Wyatt Wagner pull this off. He's a talented kid, Jed. Like, I, I honestly, um, I, I say kid, you know, I mean, kid to me. Um, Wyatt's been doing this at a high level for, for several years now. And I'm just telling you, of those four there would be, there's no surprises there. Like those guys are all talented. They're all capable. It's going to be really fun to watch. What's also going to be really fun to watch and what has been fun, at least for me to watch over the course of the last two weeks and really for the last, the the better part of this season. How about our boy, Big Jed, Jeremy Hancock? He's about to win himself. He's about to win himself a top dragster world championship behind the wheel of, a bracket car like it's a fast bracket car this is slow top dragster big jet he's down 707 in the final at charlotte back to back wins the past two weeks he wins the divisional at galat he wins the national event at charlotte couple that with two early season wins and a runner-up to this point jeremy hancock has staged up in seven nhra top dragster events this season he's been in five final rounds with four wins that's that's world championship material Absolutely love this. Rewind any podcast where we were talking about some big race. I think you called this. I think you called this. I've called this. I've said, you know, my choice to win the million. and Any race Jeremy Hancock's in, Jeremy's my horse. He's my dog. Um, And I think that this guy's very, very talented. I also believe going seven O's in top dragster is the way to do it. Unfortunately, you can't qualify for every event going seven O's. So that's why people have to go silly fast to get into shows when they get serious about this. Jeremy has strategically moved around event to event and positioned himself where he's going to events that he can qualify at. And it's obviously working out extremely well for him. He's played this very smart. Um, Lee Crawford, Facebook friend guy I know he's he sent me a message a little while ago and said you know just so you know Jeremy Hancock's about to win himself a world championship in top dragster and he says he'll go west if he has to um, borrow a ride basically so um, you know Jeremy Jeremy's obviously committed to it and and I am more than pulling for him to get this done very good dude genuine guy just a lot of fun to be around a guy you absolutely can't dislike and it's going to be really cool to see him hoist that that big wally and get this done with jeremy's back-to-back wins in galat and charlotte he is in commanding position on paper um he currently leads the national championship standings by two and a half rounds and in that uh, similar to what we just talked about with Greg Stanfield and Pete Tagnolo, Hancock is in the lead by two and a half rounds and his next national event counts full. So when he stages for round one, he, he tacks on 30 more points. So it looks like he's two and a half rounds ahead. Assuming he can stage for round one, he would be five and a half rounds ahead. And this isn't a class where it's five rounds to win, right? So he's a race ahead. Now, the tricky part to that is, as you mentioned, Big Jed, you get 30 points when you stage for round one. In order to stage for round one in top dragster, you have to qualify for the show. That's not a given for Jeremy Hancock the rest of the way, right? You only get 10 points for entering. 
and not qualifying. So he really needs to, at the bare minimum, stage for round one. And we know with Jeremy's skill set, if he stages for round one, that's not subject to be the only round that he stages for, right? The trick <laughs> yeah. is simply getting into the show. Jeremy's entered in St. Louis this week. Um, I haven't checked since the entry list closed. I could probably pull this up. I believe there were 36 entries. Let me pull this up just so that I'm not lying. Humor me for just a moment. So Jeremy's well, making his... Go ahead. No, nah, I was going to say, well, you know, I mean, I... I Obviously, he's committed to going west if he has to, borrowing a ride. This is a guy that anybody that's not in contention is going to put him in the hot rod. So Jeremy's going to get this done. I would prefer to see him get it done in his own car, but even if he's got to borrow one to get in the show somewhere, he's going to get this done. All right, so as we come into St. Louis this weekend, I would tend to agree, but you got to keep in mind, like, the, the top dragster diehards, Big Jed, they don't like the idea of a 7-0 dragster coming in and win the world championship. Like it might be harder to find a competitive fast car than you or I would like to think because that's a fraternity that doesn't necessarily like this idea. You know, Luke, there's a, there, Jeremy's a big Georgia fan. Go dogs. <laughs> there's a guy that uses the term dog a lot. <laughs> that is not your typical Fair. top dragster diehard. Somebody just get word to Anthony Bertozzi and tell him, look, man, these guys are trying to keep Jeremy from winning this thing because he can't qualify. I got you, dog. Let's get them I dogs got, together. Yeah, I get I get him run this car down there to you, dog. <laughs> nah, he's getting this done. This is this is piece of cake. Done. All right. So Jeremy Hancock is, is entered I mean, presumably in his own ride. In this weekend's Midwest Nationals in St. Louis, there are 35 top dragster entrants. That means that assuming everyone shows up and everyone gets down the track, there will be three that do not qualify. Looking at the list, I think, I think Jeremy's faster than three or four of the cars entered, but that's not a given. And I don't know, top dragster is weird, man. People blow up, people break stuff. Um, I think there's just going to be two qualifying sessions at St. Louis. It's going to be cool this weekend. So there's subject to be a knucklehead or two that make two runs faster than 6'10 and get disqualified. I like Jeremy's chances of qualifying. That was, that was a long yeah. way of saying I like Jeremy's chances of qualifying. If Jeremy qualifies, um, and particularly if he can string together a couple of wind lights, like it's just about over. It's looking pretty it's good. It's looking I, think, pretty good. I don't know, but I think Jeremy's a par customer. Um, yeah. They probably got something sitting in the corner over there, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> uh that they're like hey hey let's throw this in there you know get you get you go about 660 and just make sure you get in no big deal bro come get it hey, this is happening he's too good a guy i mean hell i ain't got no money but i'll buy him an engine if that's what it takes to to i mean i'll spend the 40 grand i'll put it on my credit card or something get him an engine if that's what it takes to win a world championship that's the kind of guy he is Honestly, I don't know that it comes to that. Like, I think he probably ends up getting in St. Louis. If he goes around, there may not even be reason to go to another one. He's still improved. That's the crazy thing. Like he's got this monumental score and there's still room to improve. Like assuming that he does qualify in St. Louis and go some rounds, he would still be improving a first round loss at his other national event if he wanted to go to another. And if, if he wants to make the trek, like, I don't know about Dallas. Dallas could get fast. Like that's a, that's a pretty, pretty, um, um, that's the word that I'm looking for. Like those are green pastures for, for top dragster racers. Like there's a lot of fast cars in that area, but if he wanted to make the trip trek to Vegas or to Pomona, 
I think Jeremy Hancock would get in going seven O's. So good. Lots of opportunity for him. All right. So now, hang on, Luke. I, I wanted to say the most interesting thing about the statement I just made was Jenny Mo sitting on the bed, listening to the podcast. She can't hear a word you're saying. All she can hear is what I'm saying. And when I said that, yeah, hell, I'll spend the 40,000, get him a motor. If that's what it takes, you should have seen the way she just looked at me. Like <laughs> what in the world are you talking about? <laughs> well, who are you fixing by a $40,000 engine for? <laughs> that was so good. It speaks to the reverence that we have for Jeremy Hancock. Yes, it does. If would, she knew Jeremy like I, yeah, if she knew Jeremy like I did or like I do, she, she would have been on board. Let's start a GoFundMe for Jeremy Hancock's world championship. Huh? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Sports and drag racing podcast sponsored. <laughs> uh, I've got a few random notes from NHRA competition at, at those three events, the, the two national events, the uh, the one points meet since we last recorded. How about Larry Willard, Big Jed? Top sportsman runner-up at both Maple Grove and Charlotte. Pretty impressive stuff for Larry Willard. He uh, runner-up to Vonnie Mills up at uh, up in Reading, runner-up to Jerry Albert this past weekend in Charlotte. Bo Luke, Butner. Luke. Go ahead. Go ahead. You probably didn't pay much attention to the fall fling. I'm sure you were busy uh, doing, you know, other stuff. But there was a trend at the fall fling. Racers with two first names. As, Larry Willard. As their names. They were flat nasty. And you, you see Jerry Albert. You see Larry Willard. Uh, I mean, it was incredible. And something about two first names is, is giving people some, a winning edge. So this is no surprise. It's just what the point I wanted to make. I caught bits and pieces of that as you're bringing it up. And, and, and it, I was going down the line. I'm blanking now. Like I've got Jeff Sarah, right? Obviously um, mm. there was, there was a, there was a few others that I just immediately come to mind. I'm like, you got pretty good odds. Kevin Brandon, right? Yeah. It's not, it's not Kevin Brandon, I guess. Really yeah. No, that you know, the Brandon would have been it, but uh, you know, <laughs> There was, there was a guy there named Zach Henry, and I mean, he was nasty. It's a good Bart it's Nelson. Na- Bart Nelson was nasty. Brandon Taylor, you know, did good, and and, and Jeff Taylor. I I said when your last name is a first name, but it's a unisex first name, that's even more gooder than just two <laughs> regular first names. So, I mean, I, that's how it was working. So I'm looking for a name change for myself as we speak. Oh, Butner, Big Jed, one soon. Supergas at Maple Grove. If you remember, we just talked about Bo Butner because he won Supergas at Indy. And if you remember a couple of races before that, like he didn't go to Brainerd, he ran up Supergas at Topeka. Just between Reading and Indy, that's 13 consecutive round wins in Supergas. That doesn't happen very often. No, it's and hard to do. Two weeks prior to that, he advances to the final, had a transbreak malfunction. Something goofy happened in the final. He didn't really even get staged at Topeka. That's his only loss in the last month plus of super gas racing. And he capped it off with a pretty impressive box score at Reading. He was he was red on his by run. He was 15 in the final. At 15 was his worst light. Um, beyond that, he had an 11 and a bunch of double O's to drive to victory in super gas. And this would be a long shot. This would be a, we talked about the logistical challenges that Pete Dagnello would face to, to chase down the super stock title. Bo's path to a, a super gas title is, is even more divergent than that. Like he is the longest of long shot contenders given his commitment to pro stock. 
I don't believe that Bo could possibly attend more than three divisional events the rest of the way. And even that would be, it would be St. Louis and Vegas. Like, obviously it's, it's within his means to do it if he wants to, but that would just be to get to the minimum. Like at that point, every race that he attended this year would count for points. But given the fact that he's been in three national event finals consecutively, he may not need to throw away any races. Like it, it, it would be, it would be an incredible story if he pulled it off, but he is a long shot title contender in super gas talked about Bo Butner's box score. Speaking of gnarly box scores, big Jed, how about the super stock winner at Reading two weeks ago, Roger Reese, super stock J automatic. This is a mid 10 second super stock car. Second round, Roger Reese defeated Lincoln Moorhead. He was 30 on the tree. If you throw that out, his worst light in six rounds of competition was 11. Yeah, that's it's obviously very, very impressive. Luke, I, uh, how many first names does Roger have in his name? Two. Yeah, exactly. Roger Reese. Another unisex too, right? Yeah, there's, there's something to it. But no, all kidding aside, yeah, aside from the 30, I mean, he's 7, 8, 11, 11, and 10. That's absolutely incredible and just flat and nasty. So uh, Roger had zero lucky rounds in there i mean the 30 light is not in in super stock competition or any kind of bottom bow competition that's not just falling out of the car by any means so uh he was uh he was crazy good obviously it was equally as good for byron warner i mean he his worst bow was a 27 and worked his way to the final with uh, one, two, three double O lights and a 19 and a 15 sprinkled. So that was as impressive really in terms of average. Uh, so that was a, that was a classic, classic final round right there. I think it's also worth bringing up. Like I mentioned, Roger Reese got his first national event win, by the way, and, and had this four thousands window on the tree for, for five of the six rounds. Can't, can't emphasize how impressive that is. They wanted in a super stock J automatic, you know, 1040 dialing. It's actually two rakes in a row now. Roger Reese did that in uh, in Reading. Troy Huntsbury, same class, Superstock J Automatic, does it in Charlotte. And the reason that that's notable, dialed in the in the mid 10 second range, and the trend certainly today and for the last several years in in stock and Superstock has been for fast faster cars, factory cars, what have you. Like it's not uncommon. We see seven second Superstockers now. It's not uncommon to see eight seconds dial-ins. You know, winning consistently it's becoming increasingly rare for the quote unquote slower cars in the class, the 10 second cars to, to perform with that degree of consistency to see back to back national event wins going to super stock J automatic machines. I think it's pretty cool. Yeah. Very cool. If I remember right, I think the super stock J automatic was a, was a class that the stockers could fall over into at one point, and that's about right, you know, for that mid to high yeah. 10 second car. I, I think I remember seeing quite a few of the, you know, the mid 90s Camaros fall over into that uh, into that category. So I'm not real sure what those racers race, but uh, that's a that's a class that you don't see a whole lot of, um, you know, of your heavy hitters, if you will, running it. So great to see those guys take more traditional super stock cars and get it done. And especially with a 10, whatever on the window, that's cool. 
Very cool. One other note that I had from uh, from the NHRA scene, this one came from Galat, and I apologize, I, I haven't followed up on this in the way that I probably should, but we're all obviously familiar with the passing of John DeBar Lameo, the, the legacy that he left, the family that he left behind. His son, Franklin, who I, at least to my knowledge, uh, hadn't, hadn't raced since losing his father, like, and certainly if he had, hadn't raced much. Um, he shows up at the Galat Division two event and just promptly wins super comp in really impressive fashion. And if nothing else like that, that made me smile. Like, I feel like it was kind of the feel good story for the last two weeks. I wanted to shed a little bit of light on Franklin Bartolomeo hoisting that Wally, obviously in his father's honor, like pretty cool stuff. Very happy to see that Uh, Frankie D obviously, um, he and his father had a very close relationship and they, they did this together for quite some time. Uh, Johnny D uh, a championship racer in his own right. And uh, Franklin following in, uh, in the old man's footsteps is really cool to see. And uh, I don't think he's given himself very many uh, opportunities to go down the track since John's passing. Luke, I think you were spot on with that. And to go into a, uh, to a hornet's nest or a, a pool full of sharks and come out with a win over one of the best that'll ever do it when it's all said and done. Very cool for Frankie D. So happy to see that. Just, just as you mentioned. Yeah. Side note to that story, Frankie D gets that victory over Sherman Adcock who, Oh, by the way, with his runner up takes over the national points leading super comp. Don't look now, but Sherman going for world championship number three in a wide open super comp category. We'll touch more on that next week. Jed, let's close out. Uh, Tickets punched. We have tickets punched situations. The ET finals, NHRA Summit ET series finals have now been contested in division one, division three, division four, division five, and division six. So just two divisions left to um, crown their champions and send a representative to Las Vegas in late October. To this point, admittedly, we've done a poor job of covering the tickets punch situation. This is something that we get pretty fired up about each season. We will dedicate a show specifically to that prior to the the World Championship runoff in Las Vegas. But there were a couple of notes from the Division I finals this past weekend at Maple Grove that, that stood out to me, Big Jed. Number one, how about your boy, bottom baller, footbreaker, Dan Casey? set not only to return to Las Vegas to defend his pro eliminator world championship. Again, a year ago, Dan Casey, not only won the division one ET finals, he went to Vegas and won the whole thing this year. He gets the rare opportunity to defend that. He not only, not only did Dan Casey win pro eliminator at the ET finals for a second consecutive season. He did it a day on the heels of winning the pro race of champions. Yes. Dan Casey fresh off his world championship runs the table at the D one ET finals punches his ticket to return to Las Vegas. That's my boy, dominant Dan really happy to see this. Um, You know, obviously had the dream season uh, by winning it all last year and Look, you just in a division one's talented, talented group of racers, especially on the bottom. You just don't see this happen. Not only does he win the 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 bracket or the the runoff there, the race of champions, then goes and wins the event that puts him back in Vegas. 
for an opportunity to have back-to-back world titles, uh, that's that's incredible. That that doesn't happen out of a talent-rich division like that. And Dan gets it done, just shows how talented he is and how capable he is. Very excited for him. Not sure who's going to be my home division, Division Two representative, but I'm calling it now, Dan Casey, world champion. I know that's another show, but I'm just going to go ahead and call it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, a couple other notes from um, from Division One, the AT Finals, or at least one more impressive box score. I actually failed. I, I, I pasted the the wrong box score up on your notes, so I don't think you've got this in front of you. But Big Jed, Brad Northrup won the Super Pro Race of Champions up in Division One in Uncle Dan's Vega, by the way. Brad Northrup in the four round race, his worst light five. His worst package, 12. Oh, my goodness. Yowza. (laughs) Now, that's two words for that, Luke. Nasty. He left little to doubt. Northrop, a a young man that that we've talked about, uh, at least on on some level in the past, um, just lighting it up in that area. Uh, Big things to come, and that's, that's that's a big family name, like no surprise. And to that point, family name, uh, a day after Brad wins the race of champions title in super pro his brother, Paul wins the sportsman category, punches his ticket to Las Vegas. So that's something oh, to watch Paul Northrup headed to Vegas. But brother's going to go out there and then they're both named Northrop. So Vegas, get ready. Uh, those boys, those boys don't mess around those Northrop. So that's really cool to see. And I'm sure that'll be extra, extra special trip. Like I said, look forward in a future episode to, to more details. We'll break down in earnest the, uh, the, the Summit ET World Championships in Vegas, each of the division champions in each of the categories. We'll make our picks sure to go wrong like we do each and every year. Um, but I do think it, it, it's a good, it's a, it's a proper segue to bring to light something that I think the, the racing community is, is probably pretty dialed into. One of those competitors, Big Jed, uh, vying for the Summit World Championship in Las Vegas in the Super Pro category is the Division Six Super Pro Champion. That's Cooper Chun. Cooper Chun, 18 years old, unbelievably talented. Like obviously, he just won the Division Six um, ET Finals in Super Pro, but he's won two track championships this season at the two tracks that he competes. He's had success off the bottom. There's not a lot of opportunities to win big dollar bracket races in the Northwest. He's won several big dollar bracket races this season. Like Cooper Chun's incredible. Cooper Chun's also 18. Cooper Chun also just this past week diagnosed with bone cancer. Um, just a, just such a, a kick in the gut to the, the racing community as a whole. And I don't want to jump to conclusions. I don't know what this means for the future. Reading his mother's Facebook post and, and knowing Cooper, uh, I know that it's he's adamant about doing whatever he has to do to get to Las Vegas. This has been a dream of his for a long time, and he's going to do everything in his power to compete uh, for his, his rightful position to compete for the world championship. But my goodness, Big Jed, like I can't imagine... As, a, as an individual, as a parent, like trying to, to compartmentalize and go through this. I'm, I'm still trying to put it in perspective myself. Yeah, Luca, obviously a devastating blow to the, to the racing community and, and uh, Cooper's circle. Uh, so 
quality young man. I know that that you're a little closer to this than meets the eye with your uh, affiliation with Ashley Thompson. And uh, I'm the same way with uh, knowing Steve Kelly as well as I do. And um, this is a young man that I met at a very early age for him. Um, had no idea he was going to grow up to be so talented and so special behind the wheel, but I knew he was a great young man then. And obviously has, uh, has stayed on that path all the way to, to where we are today. Um, has a, has a big circle of friends and family, uh, in support of him always. This will, will just heighten that for sure. Um, you know, his mother has obviously asked for a, a prayer chain and, and thoughts, uh, good thoughts of healing and uh, great procedures to be done to help her sweet child get back the quality of life that he has become accustomed to and certainly to continue on the path that he's on in, in greatness in racing and in life. A really fine young man that uh, seems to be going at this with uh, with the kind of spirit that that inspires people and one that I could only hope that I could take to this battle. Uh, Cooper's got that. So we're pulling for you, Cooper. The world's pulling for you. Your story is getting a lot of traction and it's spreading uh, far and wide. And that's going to create a prayer chain for you, my friend, that is going to do its part. You go into this and do your part. And you're going to come out of this on the other side with a heck of a story and continue down this path of greatness that you're on. And certainly, um, you know, as, as little as it seems, as, as, as least important as it seems, um, would love to see you make it to Vegas and, and get to compete there and do your thing. Hopefully this does not uh, keep that from happening and you're able to, to go there and enjoy what you've worked hard for and, you know, be victorious, whether it's on the track or off the track. Uh, again, we're all pulling for you to do that and then continue on and, and beat this down and, and come out well on the other side. Jed, you mentioned my relationship with, with Cooper. And, and just for those of you that don't know him, I'll, I'll, I'll just share this story To As Jed mentioned, my, my, team member within this is Bragg Racing League for several years now, Ashley Thompson. She and Cooper are basically like siblings, like been very, very close their entire life. So I knew of Cooper and, and kind of got to know him through association through Ashley. Ashley is someone that you're familiar with as a listener. Like she comes on, she'll be coming on in a couple of weeks to, to break down our This is Bracket Racing uh, driver series points as, as we kind of turn into the home stretch. And so as a result of their relationship, like Cooper had helped us within this is bracket racing to do several things. Like he, he sent out mailer packets, things like that. I finally got an opportunity to meet him at the, uh, at the spring fling in Vegas this year. And we kind of hit it off. And, um, we held a, we held a live event just a couple of months ago in, uh, in Woodburn, Oregon, one of our, this is bracket racing elite, um, events, like a, basically an on-track driving school. And a week prior to it, Cooper called me just kind of out of the blue and volunteered. He's like, Hey, if you just need another set of hands, like I'd love to come help out. He's been an elite member for a long time. I'm like, yeah, we could, we could use like four extra set of hands at these things. Like they're a lot of work, right? Come on. And so Cooper's there with Justin Lamb, Mark Kidd, myself, and, you know, a, a group of our members that are, are all working to get better on the racetrack. And Cooper at, at 18 years old, like by the time that our two days there were over, he helped 
racers as much as Justin or I did. And what was even more incredible than that, especially among the racers from that region, they all had infinite respect for Cooper at 18 years of old and 18 years of age and took whatever he offered as gospel, right? And he was spot on with everything, like so well spoken, so much understands the game and just such a good kid. Like, I, I was going to say, dude, but kid, like 18 years <laughs> old, right? Um, he's just such an impressive young man and on and off the racetrack. And to, it, it tears my heart apart to, to know that he's dealing with this. And obviously the, the hope is that, because this can go so many different ways. I don't, I don't know the details. Like the, 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 the beacon for hope here is, is Steve Torrance went through something along these lines 30 years ago and look where he is right like complete remission living a great life and we've all got examples of it of it going the other direction right and and so it's far too early to to predict or prognosticate but i think it's fair to say like we're all in cooper's corner here and and those that know him like everybody is in his corner those of you that don't like you'd you'd love the kid he's amazing so uh wishing him and his family well certainly as they as they uh, go into this battle very well said, Luke, and uh, nothing you said is a surprise, uh, knowing Cooper. So really good stuff there. And uh, again, for those of you out there that, that don't know him, it, uh, it, it's, it doesn't keep you from uh, adding to the prayer chain and helping him pull through this and, and get come out on the other side well and, and with the quality of life that, that we all want and we definitely want to see that for cooper so we're pulling for you cooper fight on my friend luke that wraps us up it's been uh it's been a long show you know with the with a week off from the the podcast uh, it, we had quite a bit to talk about and i think well, you know i know i did and we might have together collectively gas bagged a little bit on a couple of topics and stretched this out a little longer so listeners if you're listening this long first of all thank you i know that couldn't have been easy um, I've, I've, I'm, um, you know, I talked a lot of racing this week and this is the day I got home from the fling. So I feel like I, I didn't really, I really wasn't into talking about racing, but Luke, when he got started, it just really pulled me right in. I, I got excited about it. So hopefully I brought the energy that I needed, but feeling pretty beat down. I'm, I, again, I'm fully transparent. I'm a guy that is just going to let you know what's happening. Um. Uh, you know, Jenny Moe sitting here looking at me like showing me like the watch sign, like looking at her watch, like it's, you know, it's 1015 here in the central time zone. And I'm sitting in my underwear, uh, six feet from the bed. And just as soon as I close this laptop, I'm going to pile off in that bed and I'll be asleep in 39 seconds. So um, I appreciate you listening, really. I said all that to say thanks for listening because I know it wasn't easy. Uh, if you got something that you'd like to talk about in regards to this show that you just listened to, we got a place you can do that. It's called the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast Facebook page. Go to that and tell us what you think about this particular show or any other one that you might have just downloaded and listened to. We'd love to hear from you often. You can do that publicly right there on the page for everyone to see, or you can send us a, a direct message, private message. And producer Mark, if he's still awake, because it's like 11.15 on the East Coast where he's at, he'll catch it. If he doesn't get it tonight, he'll get it some other time. So uh, we appreciate any feedback that you're willing to offer. We love to hear from you anytime. Luke, um, it's time for shouts. Um, 
I didn't say sharks like I did, <laughs> uh, <laughs> like I did at the race. I said shouts, just so you, just so you fully understood what I was calling for right here. Shouts to sharks. Shouts to 106. Dan Fletcher, like I can't emphasize, overemphasize how impressive that is. Shouts to Superstock J Automatic. Yes. Shouts to Math Big Jet. Apparently, we are not very good at it. No, Half bad. 80 is 340. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Shouts to Jeremy Hancock's pending GoFundMe account. We need a we need a pro charger. We need a side slinger. We need a we need a side huffer on that car. Make sure we get in. Shouts to dogs in general, Big Jed. You started yes. the show talking about dogs on the racetrack at Bristol. I don't know how we got there. I don't think I that know really I happened. Right. <laughs> we, we, we went to the Georgia Bulldogs and then we went to Anthony's dog. So shouts <laughs> to dogs. That's all I got. <laughs> what a great list of shouts. And uh, the fact that you shouted out sharks right off the bat, just uh, that's extra special. This There's podcast. only one place to start. Only one. This, <laughs> this podcast needs the gold star by it when it gets posted uh folks if you like to use the twitter uh we're very active there we love to to see your tweets and uh, hashtag us and bag us and tag us and uh, add us whatever you do on twitter uh luke is at luke bogacki b-o-g-a-c-k-i i am at jp11x we need to hear from you just so we know somebody's listening get us on the facebook page or the twitter and uh, we'll will at back at you or you know like whatever you posted or whatever but we need to hear from you folks so let us know you out there and uh, again thank you for listening this long i know it couldn't have been an easy deal to, do, to sit through and uh, we'll be back and we can't wait and i'm serious i mean super excited can't wait to talk to you real soon about more sportsman drag racing Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss or at least reference This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries. There's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.